So, good morning, everyone. I hope you had a good night's sleep and you're feeling ready. I'd like to request your kindly attention for some practical instructions. So, this is not a guided meditation. I'd appreciate your open-eyed kind of attention. Um, this is um, a feature that is part of, as much as I can see, all Buddhist traditions. Namely, uh, they have a profound appreciation of uh, attention directed to bodily experience. Yeah? This is a very crucial piece of Buddhist meditation. The embodied nature of the mind has been well understood by Buddhist contemplative traditions and all of them have actually a great emphasis on a, a training that basically consists of redirecting involuntary attentional patterns that tend to default to thinking about things, discursive processes, habitual discursive abstractions, to learn to make use of this attention in other ways than we habitually would. Remember the very simple instruction to just feel the breath and then stay with the breath and then continue staying with the breath. Yeah? That's the sort of simple instructions which are actually not so simple to follow. Yeah? Um, the truth will be that most of what you practice as meditation will often feel as if it's not working. Yeah? So be prepared that basically some of the things that sound simple are not necessarily simple. Welcome to Buddhism. Yeah? <laughs> you know, it's famous for making the most simple things like breathing complicated and, and things you've never thought about like attention becomes you know, infinitely complex and multifaceted. Um, be wary. Maybe this is just my own pathology speaking here. So, <laughs> so your mileage may vary on this one. Uh, what I see Buddhist traditions are very clear about is that we need to learn to redirect attention from habitual cognitive patterns of thinking about things, about us, about our sensory experience, about who we are, about what the world is, to actually connecting with how the world feels in the body. We're not speaking of emotion, we're not speaking of concepts, we're not speaking um, of the pleasure we derive from this. We're actually speaking of embodied, sensate experience. So th stuff that you get through your senses, stuff that you get via your tactile experience, that's wherever your skin is involved, and stuff that you get through interoceptive and proprioceptive experience. That's what the body uh, uses to feel itself from inside. Now, body is a very strange thing. Uh, in many ways, you could, uh, it is both the object of our senses. You know, we can see the body, we can touch the body, we can uh, nibble at the body, we can smell it, we can taste it even. Yeah. We can hear, if you rub your fingers in your ears, you can actually hear parts of your body. You can hear all kinds of things about bodies. So the body is an object of our senses. That's, you know, an obvious feature of our experience. At the same time, the body is also the milieu of our sense organs. You know? It means that the, the body is also the subjective part in which we actually experience not just this body, but other bodies and the world. Yeah. So that's what Buddhist traditions understand by embodiment. We are at once object bodily objects to our own senses, and yet these senses are part of the body. Yeah. That's often not so clear because the thinking mind doesn't actually acknowledge this. The thinking mind says, you know, uh, if it's grown on here on the end of my finger, you know, it's my fingernail, and if I clip it off, it's just some ugly fingernail in the sink, yeah? And it's something either to be gotten rid of or to feel nausea at or, you know, we're quite weird in this. So the, the thinking mind doesn't acknowledge embodiment to the extent we every, every one of us experiences this on a daily basis. 
So the split that takes place in the thinking mind is often profoundly productive for suffering. Yeah? <laughs> um, uh, uh, Gregory Bateson, a man I greatly admire, has at one point said, you know, one of the, the major sources for suffering in this world is just how the world operates and how, how the mind thinks and the discrepancy between those two accounts for a lot of the friction and the pain we experience in our lives. So Buddhist meditation traditions do have some great emphasis in learning us connect with that body. And it may seem paradoxical because we, we pride ourselves to be a sensu- sensuous culture, you know, sensory refinement, and to possess the possibility to obtain sensor- sensorially refined experience are highly appraised by our societies. They're a motor of substantial parts of our economies. <laughs> yeah. So on one level, we are a total sensuous lot. Yeah. On the other level, <clears throat> we are a somewhat biased when it comes to what kind of sensory experience we're willing to pay attention to. Usually we want to pay attention to pleasant sensory experience, preferably consistently pleasant sensory experience, if possible, ecstatic pleasant sensory experiences. <laughs> yeah? I also willy-nilly pay attention to the body when it's in pain, when it's hurting, when it uh, is not functioning in some way. So um, I am, by bias, favoring pleasant sensory experience, and then I'm willing to, under the guise, under the aus- auspices of enjoyment and appreciation, I'm willing to pay attention uh, you will meet some mindfulness teachings sometimes being sold under under this heading, so to be more deeply appreciate you know the beautiful things in life, which indeed is a side effect of mindfulness meditation. We can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. It's probably not what the Buddha meant initially, um, <laughs> but that's another story. On the other side, we pay attention to that things which feel unpleasant, which feel painful, which somehow we regard as a deviation from what we perceive the norm for bodies to be. Yeah. This shouldn't feel that way. But there is a huge zone in, in between the pleasant and the unpleasant in our bodily experience that we are scarcely interested in. You know, whenever you do body work, you will probably know that there is considerable resistance to actually get people engaged with their bodily experience that is neither particularly pleasant nor particularly painful. You, know, you may find yourself that there are many more fascinating things right now than to just to feel um, you know, the, how the weight distributes itself on the sit bones as you sit here or you know, how your breakfast is gradually being digested and absorbed into into your metabolism. You know, there are many, many more fascinating things to do right now. So there is a considerable resistance for many of us to actually continually engage with embodied experience if it's not particularly pleasant or if it's not particularly painful. You know. Most of the time, we will quickly, quickly, flit away with our attentional focus to something that's happening outside. And if you're really cornered like in a meditation hall on a Buddhist meditation retreat where minimal stimuli are offered, uh, you probably venture inside and rummage around. You know, very quickly, if the outside stimuli are not terribly fascinating, uh, you will begin after closing your eyes to find Memories offering themselves to be revisited, fantasies offering themselves to be revisited. Some of them pleasant, some of them unpleasant, but definitely they will be different from your bodily experience right now. So Buddhist meditation trainings across the board really feel this is important that we learn to be with the body, not just when it's pleasant and happy and exotic, and not just when it's painful, but actually on a more reliable, consistent basis. To be able to make use of our bodily intelligence. We're very proud of our sort of pre-frontico cortical development, but actually, you know, that's a very recent sort of 
development. There is actually cellular intelligence on the level of our body that predates our prefrontal cortical uh, stuff by quite uh, a long time. You know, that last piece is 150, 170,000 years ago by my last reckoning. Uh, your cellular intelligence goes back basically to, you know, the existence of life on this planet, which is, you know, four and a half billions, 4.3 billions is the last figure I heard. So there may be more knowledgeable voices in this room than myself here, but a long time, yeah, a lot more than just the, the frontal lobe. So learning to reconnect with bodily experience on a more consistent, on a more attuned way, uh, a few challenges present themselves. One of them is our attention is not just directed into different corners of our experience. Uh, one, one such map is the map of the Satipatthanas, which suggests basically you know, bodily experience is one corner. Plus, hedonic experience, so what you experience as pleasure or displeasure is one corner. Uh, emotional and uh, intentional experience like will functions and impulses is another corner. And finally, you know, discursive and conce uh, conceptual thoughts. Everything that you do with your mind as a mind event, as a cognitive event, would be another sort of big chunk of stuff we're encouraged to contemplate in separate and somewhat different ways. Yeah. So this map is quite useful and we hope to say some more about this in the days to come. But one of the things that presents itself is that the raw material in those four channels, if you so want, is slightly different. You know, Thoughts are doing rather different things than body sensations. Yeah? So it's not enough to just look in a different corner. You actually need to calibrate your attention to different phenomena. While thoughts are fast, they usually tell what they mean. They have many siblings, you know. They like to network. And they basically never stop. They talk to you, you know. I don't know what your thoughts do, but mine, they keep saying things like, I'm important. <laughs> Believe me, I'm the last of my kind. Do something, don't just sit around. Don't forget me. You know, they, they kind of appeal, you know. Maybe you have other kinds of thoughts, so... Apologies if this is just my diagnosis speaking, but uh, mind generally wants something from me. So thoughts is a very different, it's, it's flitting, it's fast, it's self-declarative. They do things, you know. Now, body sensations, they, they don't kind of have meaning, you know. This kind of a sort of a, a vague sense of warmth noodling from my upper stomach towards my left shoulder, it doesn't have a distinct meaning, it doesn't have crisp edges. It doesn't have, it doesn't associate like thoughts do. So when I want to, when my attention is calibrated to deal with cognitive phenomena, as, as I think most of our attention is, then just looking into the body corner doesn't actually do the job. You know, if you look with the same kind of lens into body sensations as you look to thoughts, you will just come to the conclusion there's nothing happening in my body. Yeah? Because it doesn't say what it means, it doesn't move fast, it, it doesn't have chiseled um, edges, you know, it, it doesn't connect, it's not self-declarative. You know? It's a lot more slow, it's a lot more diffuse, it's a lot more amorphous. It's, yeah? Does that make sense? So you actually have to kind of change the mesh of your attention, not just the direction where you look. We need to recalibrate. And that takes a little effort, and it goes a little against the grain. It just means, um, because it doesn't respond to your habit, it means it feels difficult, or nothing is happening, or there's an, an implicit expectation that my body sensation should be as crisp and as detailed and as easily understandable as, say, my thoughts are. That's often the implicit expectation, even though you may not think that out loudly, but there's a kind of implicit expectation of this sort of thing. So basically, I would encourage you to become um, really patient and sort of curious, childlike, curious. Think of two kids finding a big empty house 
And you keep opening doors, you know, you're kind of opening doors and what's in there. Yeah. And so enter spaces. Curiosity, amazement, uh, a kind of a mixture of respect and courage. Yeah. Probing into. Yeah. Buddhist teaching is a lot of encouragement to probe into. One of the features of mindfulness is that it probes into things. It goes beyond what you already know. Whenever mindfulness tells you what you already know, be suspicious. It's probably not mindfulness talking. Yeah. So bodily um, forms of uh, attentional training take a, a huge chunk in, a, in our retreat format. In fact, we will probably never quite leave the body as a, as a mainstay. We will venture into other realms of practicing mindfulness, but the body will always be a mainstay. With body, um, sensations are meant, posture is meant, uh, orientation of this body in space is meant. We, we have a lot of help here. Gravity is helping us. Uh, our sensory functioning is helping us. Um, the world continues while we decide to meditate. I heard the, the roofers will be continuing. I haven't heard them yet, but you may uh, we may hear them. So we have a lot of help from the sensory world to bring us back to the present moment and to the embodied experience. One uh, simple way, obviously, is uh, establishing posture, establishing breath, establishing an anchor. I would like to encourage you to identify what we call an anchor area. This is an area in your body where you most easily feel the breath. Preferably the breath, but if for some reason the breath doesn't work, anything that you can reliably go back to and feel, say your wrists or your ankles. Uh, if it is something that is connected with breathing, <clears throat> that would be preferable, although this is not always possible, where you can feel the breath most easily. Yeah? Maybe your belly moving, maybe your clavicula going up and down, maybe your ribcage widening. But it's important that it is what you feel, not what you imagine, visualize, think of. The breath felt is a, in a continued way is a lot more calming than the breath observed. Okay, That's a very, very big difference, a profound difference. The, the soothing effect and all samadhi practice, all practice of calm, begins with self-soothing, yeah? is a lot more affected if it is connected to a felt quality, an embodied felt quality, rather than, um, you know, one breath, two breaths, and then from then on I'm basically visualizing the breath, or I'm just observing it. Yeah? These are different types of activities, and we'll, we'll need to say more about how we calibrate types of attention according to the way we relate to the objects or the processes we take up as exercises. If we just observe these things, it's very different than if we get in touch with it or if we probe into it. So for the time being, I'd like to suggest that you look at your sitting posture. Um, make sure this is obviously boring for some of you who've been doing that many times and since this is an experienced retreat, uh, Bear with me for a moment. This is a, a wonderful invention, Japanese traditions, to be credited for this. This seems to be more a adapted version that doesn't really contain the genuine substance it should contain. It sounds more like spelt rather than kapok. But so let's do. Think of this as a as a wedge. Don't think of this as something that upholsters your behind, okay? Think of this as a wedge. You sit on the edge of this. You make sure that you have a slight tilt in your pelvis. And if you would like to use the back of your hand to feel the small of your back right now. And you notice that a little, just a little rolling of your pelvis forward or backward has actually quite a dramatic impact on the small of your back. Now, ideal is that you are not hollowing your back, okay? 
the natural curvature of the spine as useful as it is for walking and running, um, you shouldn't have too much of a, a hollow spine when you sit here. So make sure that you feel the sit bones really well. If you're on a chair, make sure that you have your soles of the feet flat on the floor yeah, and come off your backrest. When you come off your backrest, you actually have some power and some weight on your heels. That means you can actually control your pelvis. Unless you have control over your pelvis, it's very difficult to use your spine or have your spine come up in a reasonably straight way. So take a moment. Obviously, this works a lot better if you have a huge belly. But, um, you know, if push comes to shove, it works also without. You know? So you may have to just practice harder without. So you notice your belly, you notice your spine, and you notice how a little uh, rolling of your pelvis backwards and forwards gives you uh, some sense what is happening in your lumbar vertebrae, you know, your sacrum, your L5, L4, L3. And you're, you're basically trying to lengthen your spine, so exaggerate making your spine long without making your spine hollow. Yeah? So you come up and you're, depending on, you know, what kind of patterns you have already established, this may feel awkward or weird or uncomfortable. So be willing to bear with this and just find whether you find a place where you're reasonably straight and reasonably centered. One way to feel that would be whether the weight goes into the sit bones. And then you open your chest, maybe move your front hand upwards, feel the front of your chest coming up and just make sure that your torso, your upper, your bronchial area is really opened. And then you take note of your posture of the head. So, if you open your eyes for a moment, still maybe with your hand, and do you notice that you're looking ahead, yeah, rather than looking down? Try to help yourself finding a posture for your head by kind of as if your gaze like handles, you know, the line of your gaze, like handles, you kind of come up. Yeah. Now, if that feels slightly artificial or exaggerated, you're just noticing this, uh, just make sure that your the sternum part gently goes upward and between your shoulder blades, imagine the, the gentle downward movement so that you're opening your chest, that you're really entering into the room, into the space. And you make sure that your neck is loose, loosened, move left and right. And then you're pulling a little bit your chin, pushing forward, pulling in, going through the extremes for a moment. And then you're looking for a placement of your chin where the head has the least amount of weight, okay? That may not be the normal position, but it's a position where you feel the muscles at the front of your neck, you know, around your larynx, of which you have many, many muscles, and at the back of your neck, that these muscles have a, are similar in tone, and the real telltale sign is that the head has the least amount of weight. Then you connect this posture of your head, most directly influenced by movements of the chin, with the good posture you have established for the small of your back and for your pelvis on the cushion, on the bench, on the chair. Yeah. So take your hands into your comfort position or wherever you usually have them and let us turn inward and try to remember this position. Acknowledge how good it feels to actually be 
in balance, to have equilibrium, to have opened one's chest, aligned one's spine, to have found one's axis mundi, you know, going right through one's own body. So I'm conscious of touch sensations, where this body makes contact with its environment, the pressure, the weight, the extension is an interesting feature. One of the features of Rupa form is that it takes space, it's extended. The length of a thigh, the size of a hand. I can feel resting in another hand or I can feel resting on my thighs in my lap. The surface that I feel is contacted by my clothing. Notice where you feel your clothing. Often interesting because if your experience is anything like mine, then I am actually not aware of that clothing everywhere. I, some areas seem much more prominent. Do you feel your ankles? your knees, pelvic joint and sit bones, feel your hands, the weight of your arms, feel the weight of my arms and my shoulders. And then let's do a quick sensory check. You may be grateful to hear the gentle hum of the AC you're likely to hear my voice. Maybe the breathing of your neighbor, fellow human beings, little noises here and there, and a quite pervasive silence in between. Sense of vision under closed eyelids, strange light phenomena in my case, twilights, greenish orange blotches moving. The idea that it's jet black when you have your eyelids closed is probably not true, but verify please. Bells. It's a, a kind of IMS meditation hall smell. You know, it's hard to say what it really consists of. Some humanity, some cleaning agent, some cushions and mats. Hard to say, but discernible. I would probably recognize it when I was led in here blind. Sense of taste, lingering echoes of whatever you have tasted this morning. Maybe it feels like nothing. So what is the taste of nothing? The taste of my own tongue in my mouth. We started off with body sensations. So let us mention them again for completion's sake and 
acknowledge channel six, our discursive mind, the area of the dhammas, cognitive events, thoughts, images, concepts, comments, anything more complex than this as well. But the raw material is discernible, flitting, beckoning. Let us just stay on the edge, learning to stay on the edge with cognitive discursive events, being able to see them rather than to talk to them, being able to acknowledge how many there are, how fast they come, how loud. Thoughts as a phenomena rather than as me. And then let us settle on the breath for a few moments where the breath is felt most discernibly in your body, where you feel comfortable with. And let us just keep coming back to that place. Whenever we notice, as is to be expected, that the mind wanders off, we come back to this anchor area. Let's do that.
Please uh, notice how much awake you are if you feel sleepy, as is quite possible on the first day of a retreat. Redress your posture, acknowledge that you're feeling sleepy, take note of the sensations of the body that speak of that sleepiness. Try to be not embarrassed or averse to this. And gently widen with your breath, your posture, sort of breathing into the sensations of numbness or sleepiness or fatigue or heaviness. Just gently widening this area, opening, redressing your posture. We need to open your eyes for a moment and pay particularly close attention to the balance in your posture. It is likely that your posture will be indicative of sleepiness. So if you pay attention to your posture, it is probably the most reliable indication of such sleepiness. Returning to the felt quality of the breathing process in the body, being generous with the area in which I give my attention to. Don't make this area too small. Don't try to force this anchor to be too small a patch in your body. Please err on the generous side. Receiving the breath into the body, receiving the breath into consciousness was a felt and sensate experience. Think of opening both of your palms as if you want to receive 
the weight of each in-breath, a delicate, tender bird that you want to support and protect at the same time you are willing to release it and do not squeeze it, to receive it tenderly and to let it go tenderly.
Please take note of what your attention is engaged with and if necessary, gently return this attention to the posture, the weight of your body, the distribution of that weight, the alignment of your spine with gravity, and finally the pulse of your breath, the coming and going of the breath, filling the body, and the body feeling how it is widened, body feeling how it relaxes on the out-breath, wherever you most easily and easily can feel that. And let's see whether for those last two minutes we can do so in an undivided way. As you'll uh, probably be aware, um, the rhythm of formal practice on a retreat such as this is the alternation between periods of sitting practice and walking practice. And really it's uh, the the combination of these that um, support the the settling, the deepening, the opening, the waking up process. So we'd really encourage you to be equally wholehearted in your practice in the walking period uh, as in the sitting period. Uh, And in fact, many people find that it's in the walking practice that insight most naturally arises. I see some nods around the room, you know. Maybe it's something about the movement, the kind of rhythmic movement, or something about the kind of degree of relative sensory impingement that seems very conducive to to the arising of insight. So really, you know, an encouragement to be wholehearted in your practice uh, of the walking. Um, And, of course, the, the walking practice or the walking period starts from the moment of the intention arising to stand. You know, I sometimes think actually this, this period should be called the standing and walking 
period, because the, 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 the experience of standing is equally part of this practice, equally an opportunity to investigate and to be curious about our experience. And so this moving from sitting to standing, and then from standing to walking, and moving to find a walking path. And as most people tend to find, it's helpful to kind of agree on a walking path that I'm going to use as my main path during the retreat, so that not having to make a you know a decision each time you know there's a, a walking period. Just to have that sense of kind of settling into a path that has a clear has clear ends, has a clear form. You know, the path gives uh, a, a kind of collecting quality to the attention to have a sense, okay, there's a, there are ends to this. Where the standing really is an opportunity to, to ask the question, how does it feel to stand? And then how does it feel to walk? It can be helpful to articulate the intention for the practice as a question like that. You know, so there's a curiosity. In, how does it feel to stand right now? How does it feel to walk? Take this step. And you know, as we walk, to, to play perhaps with, with two variables one of which is the variable of pace. You know, at this time, in this moment, what pace helps to support engagement with the experience? You know, this sensed uh, sensitivity, this sensitivity to the the the, the feeling of, of walking. You know, what pace? Sometimes it's a sense of, you know, what pace kind of catches the mood or mental state of the moment and really uh, kind of engages with that and maybe has a sense of slowing it or steadying it or collecting it. You know, if, if the mind's very restless, sometimes to, to walk a little, you know, faster and to kind of catch that mood and then let the, the pace gradually support a settling, a grounding, a collecting. You know. But if the mind's very sleepy and sluggish, maybe we kind of catch that and actually it needs a little bit more vitality in the pace. So to play with pace in terms of what supports this kind of presence, this connectedness with the experience. And also, to, the other variable to, to play with would, might be one that we could think of in terms of, say, focus, or almost like aperture of, of, of the, the lens of awareness, or, or foreground, we could say. You know, what am, what's the primary anchor here, to use that language that Akinjano used just now? And, you know... F- Often the soles of the feet. I'm guessing, you know, everyone here has probably done walking practice and knows what a a good friend the soles of the feet can be to uh, kind of help support a collecting, a steadying, a grounding, a sustaining of presence with embodied experience. But it may be that just kind of, as you play with that, just to widen the aperture and it's, okay, it's the feet and the legs or the lower half of the body. That really kind of gives a sense of the center of gravity coming down in a more um, felt way. Or maybe it is the whole body moving. So not that there's one right way. This is, you know, this is the play aspect. What most supports connection 
with sensed embodied experience. Does that make sense? You know? Being curious. Experimenting. You know? And uh, foreground and background can be a helpful uh, kind of perceptual template for this. So the sense of, okay, the body, you know, the soles of the feet or the whole body, whatever it is in the foreground, and just letting then everything else be background. So, the thoughts, the moods, the sounds, the sights, you know, nothing we have to get rid of, you know, just allowing it all to be background and just keep letting the, the chosen theme, the chosen focus, if we're going to use that word, the chosen theme, kind of re-emerge into the foreground of awareness. Don't have to suppress anything, just to keep choosing and re-choosing, you know? And uh, that, that sense that, uh, well, it's not like cricket, you know. It's not that, you know, we're, we're trying to make sure I do enough up and down, you know. It may be that there, there are, there's a sense that, okay, the mind's very restless, so I'm just going to stand for a while and really collect. And then take some more steps. So including, you know, making the standing a real support to presence. Equally valid, valid part of the practice. Because we're walking to, to be here. Or we're standing to be here. Not to get somewhere else. Ground will be a good friend today, first day of the retreat. Ground. As, as well as perhaps this uh, midline, vertical midline, which Akinshino called the axis mundi just now. You know, that kind of axis running through the body. Very helpful just to orient to ground and midline. They can really support a sense of, of presence rather than leaning into the future or kind of back into the past. Mm. So standing and walking practice. Thich Nhat Hanh sometimes says, you know, the miracle's not to walk on water. You know, the miracle's to walk on the earth. You know? uh, and can we bring that, that kind of attitude of appreciation uh, and even a kind of wonder the, the experience of walking. So the, the, the notices about the, the phones use this word ceremony. Um, and this is not going to be something elaborate. Um, what we just would suggest is that, we're, that, that as you get up and in your own time make your way out to walk, uh, if you're giving in your phone, please bring it up and uh, place it in the basket here where, for its safekeeping. Uh, and um, we will actually stay s- sitting here and just kind of receive uh, the phones that are given in with our... Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, with appreciation for that, that gesture of renunciation and of course if you didn't remember to to um to bring your phone this this morning you can always give it into the front office um during the day or the days of the retreat um, so we're blessed with a day to practice sitting standing walking enjoy Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.